What's up, everyone? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the ND Hackers podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How did they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions at their companies? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own successful internet businesses. Today, I am excited to sit down with Rosie Sherry. I've had the pleasure of working with Rosie for the past several months in her role as the community manager for Indie Hackers. So if you're active in the community, you've certainly seen Rosie leaving comments, making posts and introductions, and just helping people out in general over the past few months. In addition to helping me out with ND Hackers, Rosie is the founder of her own community. It's called Ministry of Testing. It's a global community of software testers. Rosie got started working on this in 2007 as a side project, really, but she eventually turned it into a business. And since then, she has bootstrapped it to over $1.2 million in annual revenue. Rosie, welcome to the ND Hackers podcast, and thanks for joining me. Thanks, Cortland. It's great being here. $1.2 million in revenue. That is a lot further than I ever got with ND Hackers. Andy Hackers doesn't make money anymore, but before it was acquired, I was experimenting with all sorts of business models. I tried affiliate marketing, I sent a lot of cold emails for sponsorships and podcast ads. So I'm pretty curious about all this kind of stuff. Can you explain to us how your community makes over a million dollars a year and where that money comes from? So basically, most of it comes from events at the moment. So we run conferences across a lot of countries at the moment. So uh, we started out... um, Basically, in 2007, we started out just as a forum. And kind of as it grew bigger and bigger, I felt like, you know, it was kind of sucking the time out of me. And I was feeling not great about all the time it was taking and not having like that financial reward for it so that I could give it my, my focus. And so after about four years of it running as an online community, I decided that I needed to figure out a way for it to make money. I had like dabbled in like some advertising stuff, some like online ads and kind of promotions for companies. But I ne- to be honest, I never really enjoyed that angle of it as so much. I didn't feel like it was like a sustainable way to build up a community. And there's also the fact that these companies always want to kind of push things in front of people's face, and they they have different goals from what I had with with the community. You know, fast forward. Going to like 2011, 2012, I, I basically decided that the community needed events and a way to physically come together. That's what I started with. Uh, so 2012, we hosted our first conference. It was in Cambridge. Uh, we call it Test Bash. We did like one training course beforehand as well. Basically, that was the start of it. We had 65 people turn up. Everyone paid for a ticket. I didn't charge a whole lot for it. I made like some money, but it wasn't really making money compared to the amount of time I spent on it. But, you know, it's money in the bank, a little bit of cash there to decide what what to do next. Uh, But the whole idea of running the conference for me was that basically for me, it's like I I was a tester and I knew that there was nothing else out there for testers. There's nowhere where testers would, would gather and speak like openly about the industry and the only other events that were out there were completely kind of corporate focused or they were full of like sales vendors just like shoving tools and marketing on your face and I was like this is not us and testers deserve to to have something better than what they had 
so that's like the event side of it. And kind of as we grew now, we do some marketing for, for companies as well. That's, you know, a fair chunk, a fair chunk of cash, I guess you would say. Um, and then around 2015, we started a professional membership where people would gain access to benefits, mostly content. And most of the content was based on the conference talks that we had recorded from the beginning. And the way forward was to include all those conference talks in in an annual kind of payment package. And as we did more and more conferences, the first year we did a conference, it was uh, like nine talks. Um, But now that we're doing like, I don't know, something like nine conferences in the year, that, you know, ends up adding up to 80 or 90 talks, and that becomes really valuable within itself. Um, And then on top of that, we do online masterclasses, AMAs, um, and we're doing courses as well that testers create. Nine conferences a year, that's like that's you sound like a crazy person that's ridiculous i remember selling sponsorships for many hackers and i had kind of the same feeling that it sounds like you had when you were doing a little bit of sales for ministry of testing before it became an in-person community and that was the feeling that you know this is it pays the bills it kind of works but it's the exact opposite of what's best for your community in most cases it's not like your community members are ever asking you for more advertising. No one's ever like, hey, can you put an ad on this page? Like, this podcast would be much better with more ads. And so you spend a lot of time working to actually make your community worse when that's your business model. Exactly. And it takes away a lot of energy from you as, a, as someone just trying to run the community. Um, and a lot, a lot of these companies are really hard to work with. Marketing people are uh, notoriously difficult to communicate with and actually get something kind of signed off and, and agreed and by the time you agreed something and you know the amount you end up getting for me it just like it wasn't worth worth the hassle and the stress so i went back and i counted this morning i looked back through the old nd hackers interviews and you were actually the 17th person that i ever interviewed after launching nd hackers so this was awesome. september 2016 almost three years ago do you remember doing that interview yes <laughs> It feels like, uh, you know, it feels like, you know, it's just so, so long ago. And like where we were as a business was, it's just like, it's just not where we are now. And it's um, crazy to think about because it's like, I haven't planned. (laughs) I literally haven't planned for where it is now. I didn't, I didn't set out to start a community and do global conferences it's kind of like I followed the community. I followed what the community were wanting and asking for. And then this is kind of what it is. But I've also learned that doing that means that, you know, this is a whole different beast. And then, what you know, it's, it's one thing doing one conference a year and running a website and keeping in touch with people throughout the year and running a forum. And then all of a sudden there's, all these multiple of conferences happening. And I think it was like 2015 or 16 that we did like our first conference outside of the UK and that was New York. And I just got really stressed out about it. And it did, you know, it did fine. It had like, you know, 180 people or something like that. 
Um, so like fin- financially, it did fine. You know, all our conferences have done okay. They've never lost money. Some have, you know, over the years produced a lot more than others. But it's just like the whole idea of like bringing conferences to, to another country is filled up with so so many unknowns. And you know, sometimes I I want I I can't understand why I just said yes to, to <laughs> doing it. I'm like, what was I thinking? It's like you know, it always seems like a great idea at the beginning, but then it's like, oh my god, what am I thinking? Well, that's kind of the. It comes with the territory of running a community where you can't just set out a roadmap and do everything that you want to do because your community members have kind of a stake. You know, you what you do is necessarily going to be somewhat reactive in, in terms of what they want. Yeah, that's been tough, and I, I don't think that people kind of see that from from my perspective. Is like it's it's a lot of pressure to think about these things, let alone act on them, and and just like everything that's involved around everything every decision we make is quite kind of overwhelming and then and then again it's like you know it's like doing one conference in one country doesn't mean you can just pick it up and like copy and paste it and bring it to another country but you know you don't know until you try and it's like we're trying things and it's hard and it's frustrating and there's lots of there's lots of work that's really not a lot of fun <laughs> um, like really not a lot of fun and I, I, I feel fortunate that uh, my husband's came on board um, midway to, to help out but he's kind of really kept me sane like with tech and management of the business because there's, lo- there's lots of things with events that are just tedious. I've heard it said by some that if they had known how hard it would be to be a founder that they never would have gotten started. And they're saying that in a way they had to be naive to have made that initial decision to start. Do you think that applies to you? What was your mindset like in the early days? So so naive, but you know, at the same time, it's like, why not? And when you think sometimes you have the backing of the community, you think it'll be okay. But in reality, you are kind of alone in that position of trying to make things happen. But yeah, I mean, totally, it's like, you know, I, I don't know if it's naivety or stupidity or <laughs> a little bit of both. I, I, I don't, I, I can't like p- pinpoint it. It's like what, what makes me <laughs> make those decisions and the, the, the looks my husband gives me <laughs> when I say we're doing something. He's like, oh my god. And you know, it's like since New York, I, I, I kept saying I'm not doing another test bash in another location, and that was like the second location, and like now we're at nine, and we keep saying that as a team, we're like no more test bashes, no more new locations, but we keep, we just find it so hard to say say no sometimes. So let's go back to the beginning of this story before you got on this treadmill that made it so hard to say no and so hard to stop. I would think that to be someone who starts a community for software testers. You probably need to be someone who has experience as a software tester yourself and ideally experience running communities. And you actually had both. So tell us about the years that you spent learning these things and picking up the skill sets that you used to eventually build such a successful community. Yeah, so I started testing. Like, I got my first job in testing in 2001. I was like 21 at the time, so I was young. didn't know what I was doing. Um, I had no qualifications or anything like that. I kind of just managed to get this job that wasn't very well paid like as a testing job, but it was better paid than the job that I had at the time, which was working in a bank. 
I was like really desperate to get out of that position. And to be honest, it's like once you get a job in testing, it's so easy to just like get another job in testing further down the line. So within six months, I'd gotten another job that paid even more. I was like so happy about that, even though it still wasn't that much. You know, it it gave me a taste of what testing was all about and I I enjoyed it. it. You know, it did interest me. And then the company that I was working for went under in the dot com boom and bust. So after that, I I freelanced and I contracted for a bit, but it was, it was kind of tough to get work at that stage, especially like I, I had like two years experience, and I just felt like any job that was out there was like there was loads more people with experience, and you know I, I just you know, had had challenges there. And then it wasn't too long after that that. I managed to get a job, and then I had my first child um, in 2003. But when I was pregnant with him, you know, that my boss was uh, not very nice to me. So that's had an impact on me as well. He wasn't nice about the fact that you were pregnant? Yeah, basically. It's like, as soon as he found out I was pregnant, he completely changed his attitude towards me and uh, was really not, not nice to me and just was out there to make my life as difficult as possible. So I was really stressed about that. And I, I decided just to get myself signed off sick and not go back because I didn't, I didn't want to deal with it. You know, people don't tell you this or, you know, society doesn't tell you this. It's like, you know, as, as a mother or as, or as you know, parents, you know, they, they like to say, yeah, you can have it all. You can have a job and, you know, you can have a career and you can have a family and it'll be fine. But, Actually, it's not fine, and there's all these hurdles that no one ever talks about. And the reality of going back to work after you have kids is is really hard, and childcare is really expensive. And then, even when I tried getting jobs after my first child, like a few months after, so I, they would talk to me. But then, as soon as they found out I had kids, they would like stop communicating. So I was like, okay, wow. this is how it's going to be. It's, it was really bad. It really is. It's like everywhere I went, that's how it was. What kind of companies were these? Were these like tech startups or? All, all kinds, to be honest. And a lot a lot of them were, were recruiters as well. So it's, like it's sometimes at that, at that point, you know, we're going back to like 2004. It was hard to apply directly to companies. A lot of the jobs posted were jobs via recruitment agencies who they would pick, who would who to put forward. And I think because recruiters are just generally motivated by money, they would, you know, be very selective in who they would put forward. And, you know, if, if that person is a woman with kids, they would see that person as not being, not having the best chance in getting the job, I guess. I don't know. So, you know, it's hard to pinpoint it. So how did you get out of this rut from you know, going from this point where it was easy for you to find jobs as a software tester to the point where now you're a mother and nobody wants to hire you? Mostly I freelanced, so I did some contract. I often found, like, work work from home. Um, and I also worked with my husband for a while on his company. Partly, he's, he's like a tech guy as well. So I did some testing stuff there, but also just generally helping out with running the business. I was there for probably a couple of years helping out, and then I kind of decided to move on to other stuff. I got sucked into the local geek world of co-working and building up a co-working community. Yeah, I know you started hosting a meetup as well. I think it was called Girl Geek Dinners. Tell us about how you got involved with that. 
I saw there's uh, Sarah who used to run them in London, and I saw that she was doing them, and I thought, oh, that's a great idea. I'd love to. I'd love to run one down in Brighton. I think it would go down well. I'd been I'd been to a few meetups, just general like geek tech meetups in Brighton, and I just you know given my my exp- my experience that I had, and I just wanted a chance to meet people and network with people. But when I started it, it was. And I, I didn't, again, you know, I don't really think about why I do things. I just like do them because I think it's a good idea. So I I did them and like for a year, like it was amazing. It was like, it was kind of completely like fully booked without any effort to put them on. I just had to like reserve a space and people would turn up, people would reserve their space. What exactly were they? It was just a talk and then like drinks afterwards and we would invite people people to talk about something related to what they were doing or, you know, just like a, a, you get these days lots of kind of talks just related to tech or whatever the meetup might be about. So, And I, I don't think people necessarily went for the talks. It was just the idea of like there was this meetup that was just for women and we had this rule that, uh, well, it wasn't just for women, so I lie there. We had this rule that uh, guys could come, but they had to be invited by a woman. Um, so some guys would like scramble for invites to come along. So that was kind of fun. But yeah, I, I think that that for me is that I had never done anything like that. And it just kind of opened my eyes to the fact that I can make stuff happen and it's fun and I enjoy it. And from those days... I became known as like Rosie Sherry. It's like I realized that people in Brighton started, you know, they knew who who I was just by the things that I was doing. And then I I took that to the next level with the co-working stuff where I helped start, I co-started a co-working space with someone else. And again, for me, that, that experience was similar, but obviously lots of responsibility and again, I question why why I did it because it was a lot of stress as well. But I just had lots and lots of fun doing it, and I met so many great people, and and it just boosted my whole my confidence in everything that I was doing. Like going from you know like a mother not really sure what she wanted to do to you know running local events and creating a space for people and being recognised for that. That's that for me was a real confidence booster one thing i've noticed from working with you and talking to you is that you're in general just a super helpful person even in your interview three years ago you talked about putting others first being one of your core values and how you care more about the experiences of your community members than you do with generating revenue maybe that's why you kept finding yourself into these situations where you're running these very social businesses providing spaces for people and talks for people and communities for people because you just end up wanting to help and you get sucked in. Yeah, I think it is. And it's like I can't quite pinpoint why I like doing that, but I'm kind of like, well, if I can help people, and then why not? And and I could see opportunities to help all these people when I was doing these meetups and co-working. And, and then when I got into creating an online community for testing, you know, that kind of started taking it to kind of a different space and a different level. Um, but I, I, there's something in me that just kind of 
keeps pushing me forward saying, well, if I can help you, I'm going to help you. And I'll point you to the right place. And it's not that I expect anything in return. It just feels like the right thing to do. Well, the good thing is if you orient yourself that way, you end up probably hitting on a lot better business ideas because you're actually doing things that you see that people need because you're talking to people first rather than sort of sitting in isolation and just thinking about what might potentially be a good business idea. You're actually out there in the thick of it talking to people and sort of being pulled in the direction where you can be the most helpful and provide the most value to people. Yeah, I mean, I, I say to a lot of people, say, say when, when people are trying to figure out what to build, you know, it's, uh, I, I encourage people to build communities as a way to build a business because it's like, with me, you say you're in there every single day. At least, you know, say if if you build any kind of community, as I'm sure you know, Cortland, you're speaking to to your audience day in day out. You're understanding the the struggles or the high points and the low points, and there's so much goodness in there. People just don't pay attention to those kind of things. I don't do customer research or anything like that because, like, my community is my customer research. It's like. I know who they are. I know what triggers them. I know what pisses them off. And and based on that, as I, I, I end up making decisions that I believe are good for them. I don't ask them their permission because sometimes I think they don't know what they want and we have to make it before they realize they do. And I think I think if I had asked people whether they wanted a conference and whether we should take it around the world, they would have said, oh, are you stupid? <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's the reality. It's like, you know, it's like, I, I just, you know, believe so much in just getting to know people. Not enough people do it. So at some point you found yourself in a situation where you had worked as a software tester. You had started the Girl Geek Dinner for Brighton and brought together speakers and attendees for over a year. You had started a co-working space. You had tons of experience bringing people together, tons of experience in software and around other geeks in general. How did you decide to create an online forum for software testing? Because that's how Ministry of Testing was born, really, this online community. Yeah, to be honest, it's like this tool came out and I thought, oh, that's kind of cool. Um, I could probably do something with that. Um, and it was Ning. I don't know if you know Ning. So it was basically a hosted uh, online community forum, which was great at the time. It was like, you know, better than anything else that was out there. And I thought, well, I'm a tester, you know, I could, you know, I think testers need to come together. Maybe I could do something around that. And it was really easy to set something up, you know. And so I just set something up. I, I knew a few testers. I had, like, been in, in contact with quite a few kind of well-known testers, you know, in that day and age. There weren't a lot out there. There weren't a lot of people blogging. Uh, it was probably you know, maybe 20, 30 people reliably blogging at the time. But I just started it and I let them know about it and that that's really how it started. And, and it was small to begin with. And like I remember getting to like, I don't know how long it took me, but when I got to the first 100 people, I was like, wow, this is amazing. 100 people. I it's love a lot of people. Well, maybe it is. I don't know. I had nothing to measure it against. And this is the thing is like, you know, I say when I, when I do things, I, I don't really measure myself against how other people do it. But, you know, to me, I, I was kind of thinking to myself, it's like, yeah, it's good. But, you know, how good is it? I don't know. But it was making me happy. And I think that's, for me, that's the 
most important thing is like I was doing something and people were talking about things and we were starting to create this little community. And I just built on that. And we stayed on Ning. Um, it took us ages to get off it. Ning got bought out shortly afterwards and then they never did anything to improve it, which was really annoying. But I think it w- we stayed on it until 2016, maybe. <laughs> I just couldn't be bothered to move away. At that point, we moved the whole discussion forum over to Ministry of Testing um, under Discourse platform. Do you remember strategically or maybe tactically the journey to get these first 100 users? You said that you knew a few of the bigger names and software testing at the time. How do you go from a complete ghost town where it's pretty much just you and maybe these few people that you know to 100 people talking to each other and helping each other out online? Mostly talking to myself and a few other people. Um, <laughs> I, I think that's, you know, and based on that, it's like mostly about showing up, you know, every day or every week and consistently trying to do something interesting to capture people's attentions. I'm, I struggle to remember the exact conversations we had, but yeah. I don't know. I, th- I think people just like knew me and like through word of mouth, People started signing up and finding finding out about the things we were doing, and I think that the other aspect is that even though like I look back and like the design was like, and the logos that we had were pretty horrible, like, I always tried to make it fun. And the whole reason I remember when I when I when I started out was I was so bored with testing. It was a horrible kind of world to be in. I mentioned earlier, so it's all corporate it's all it was all certification based and all people seemed to care about was talking about these, you know, how, how to pass a, an, an exam um, and stuff like that. And as I say, my whole focus was to try to move away from those kind of conversations and start talking about real issues faced around testing. And I think that's kind of what, kind of clicked with most people that came in. They saw that, like, genuine conversation was happening. It wasn't like a marketing gimmick. There was, like, people here who were interested in talking about testing and improving themselves and and the craft. I think most people see the world as essentially unchangeable. If they enter some industry and it's drab and gray and boring, they think that's just how it has to be. And, you know, maybe they if they don't like it, they leave. Whereas what's fascinating about what you did and what I think a lot of founders do is you see the world as something that can be changed. If software testing is not as exciting as some other fields, you don't think, well, I need to get out of software testing. You think, what can I do to brighten this up? What do you think it is about you and maybe your experiences that led you to see things this way? I don't know. I just I just knew, you know what it is? It's that I went to some conferences around the same time or you know, like within a year or two of setting it up. And I got really, they were like local web tech conferences. Um, and I just got really inspired by the things that people were doing. And like I would go to these conferences and have great conversations, but I would always be the, like the only tester there. And like if I introduced myself as a tester, they'd be like, what? You know, what's, you know, so what do you actually do? And it really made me think about the whole testing world and what we had. And that kind of inspired me to just like, take those ideas basically and 
implant <laughs> into the testing community and say, how can I inspire the, the next generation of testers? Because we need it. There's so much bad software out there. You know, I still wholeheartedly believe that testers need to be there to help produce better software. But I could basically see that the testing world needed an injection. And I, I don't know why, but I, I thought I could maybe make a little dent into that somehow. And that I that's how I started the community as well, thinking that I'll just do a little thing for fun and let's see what happens. And um, I would browse the web, seeing what other people were doing, were doing and I'd take ideas from, from that and see if they would work on our community. I would steal conversation ideas, all sorts of things. And really it's just experimenting with ideas consistently and seeing what sticks. There's a lot of good stuff there that I think can apply to almost any business. So the first one has been kind of a theme on the Andy Eckers podcast for the last month or two. I talked to Daniel Baskin, who started 23 companies, and every one of them has been this creative, eye-catching, remarkable stuff that people just don't think about. Like Most of her companies start as a result of jokes that she thinks would be funny, and she turns into companies, and they get a lot of attention. And I talked to Ali Lefevre, who runs a branding agency, and their whole sort of point of differentiation is how they inject fun and humor into your brand to make you stand out. And here you are talking about how you started a community for software testers, which I think on its face seems like probably the least fun, least humorous, least zany thing that you could do. And yet your entire approach was to figure out like what you could take from other areas and other spaces to actually make it inspirational, what you could take that was fun from other tech conferences and inject into this otherwise gray world. And based on that, one of the things that we did was create a newspaper, like an actual physical newspaper. And again, this was kind of like, I saw this company, the Newspaper Club, uh, I saw that they had launched and I was like, oh, that's an amazing idea. You can make your own newspaper. How cool would that be? Um, what community can I create a newspaper for? I was like, oh, let's do it for the testing community. <laughs> Let's, you know, let's get people to, to, to write articles and you know, create games in it and have interviews and all sorts. And we did it. And it was, it was fun. It's like I, have, I have really, like, you know, it makes me smile when I think about that, even though it never really made any money. Uh, you know, we did ship them off to people, you know, like a couple of hundred people. Um, people used to complain about the price. Or it was too expensive and stuff like that. But we, we created an online version as well. And those still exist. And I still have some physical copies in my garage. One of them has had like a lean article on the front, something about lean testing. And on it, there was a picture of a guy who was not fit. And then a guy next to it really kind of muscled up. <laughs> it's a perfect example of, of doing something different. Because how many online communities are you a part of? Or how many products do you love that actually have a physical newspaper that they will ship to you? Right, pretty much none. And when you get that, then you want to talk to people about it and share it because it's just so remarkable because it's so different. You know, one of my favorite things about your community is that, probably directly related to this kind of stuff, is that your members are absolutely fanatic. Like you've had not one, not two, but I think nine different Ministry of Testing members who've gotten tattoos on their bodies of the Ministry of Testing logo. They literally yeah. have the words Ministry of Testing permanently inked onto their forearms and legs and stuff. How do you get people to care? so much about what you've created it's really really simple is that i'm kind to people and i think about people 
first and I think about how I can help them and how I can lift them up at every opportunity that I can. No matter what community you create, you can change people's lives. And that's kind of what I focused on. You know, going back to something like the the newspapers, like, yes, it was fun. When I think about it, it's like we managed to get people to publish articles who would never have published articles before. Lots of those people, that was their first article they ever published, as an example. So they, they will always like remember remember that and keep them keep that kind of memory in their heart kind of thing. And as we grew, it's like that kind of philosophy continued to grow in, in everything we did. So it's like a lot of conferences, for example, these days, you know, there's a lot of pressure on them to be ethical, but it's like for us, we were ethical from the beginning because that's the right thing to do. Uh, we always paid speakers' expenses for all the speakers. We've never done keynotes. We've tried to keep everything as affordable as possible. Uh, we've done scholarships for people, you know. And there's you know some great stories that Emma will probably hate me, but we're good friends now. But you know, every year she gets a bit emotional with me when we when we hook up at, at Test Batch Brighton because. She applied for the scholarship a few years back to attend a week's worth of training and attend the conference. And she was probably 33, 34 at the time, working a not very good job, really wanting to get into testing, but couldn't find her way in. So I gave her a scholarship. And like by the end of the week, she had a job offer. And she was just like completely blown away. But... I struggle to kind of take credit for that because really it's like the whole community was behind that. Was They were all supporting Emma as well. So it's like somehow it's like just by kind of continually trying to support these people and do positive things and do the right thing and just like kind of create a business in, in a very human kind of way. People have have really, really like gotten behind it in a way that I can't believe you know, and it's kind of sad that there's not as many examples as there should be for running a business like this. You know, so the more I do it, the more I just don't understand why people can't run businesses in a human and an ethical way. You know, paying forward with kindness and doing things because they can. It's like for us, it's like offering a scholarship doesn't really cost us money. It's like sure, there's a space of a training place and. A conference um, space, but really, it, it doesn't. It costs us like the money of food, and usually we wouldn't like completely sell out our tickets. So you know, really, it's like it was a no-brainer for me. It's like, why can't we do this? And for me, it's like the, the amazing thing is, it's like I've done this, and people see that, and they kind of take a step back when I just say yes to stuff, um, or I see I see an opportunity online or someone asking for help, and and I'll offer my help and. For some reason, it's like when I do that, it's like now everybody does it. So it's like the, the whole idea of the scholarship that we, we started is now like taken on a new level where quite often members of the community just buy tickets for other people and they raffle them out or they try to find people to support. So it's like the whole kind of act, uh, the whole like kindness thing is like replicating itself, multiplying itself. And it's showing that, you know, people can. <laughs> really nice to each other and it really does make a difference to people's lives and when other people you know get those tickets and then become a part of the community and they then get blown away by 
by all the support that they get. They're like, oh my God. I give credit to the whole community because it really isn't, it isn't just me. I think a lot of people do so much behind the scenes that they don't get credit for. I feel a bit, a bit guilty for trying to take any kind of credit. But at the same time, it starts with you because you're the one who founded the community. And I think, you know, it's fascinating about communities in particular, but really any sort of group of people or any sort of businesses that people kind of, for lack of a better word, enjoy copying each other. Like, when we don't know what to do. It's pretty much a safe bet to do what the people around us are doing. And so if you're the founder of a community and you have a personality quirk, for example, you really believe in kindness and it's at the core of your value system and you always do things for other people, even not expecting other things in return, and you set that example and you can kind of expect other people in your community to copy what you do. And now it's taken on a life of its own. And even if you're not the one responsible for all these acts of kindness, like you kind of lit that initial match. You got the spark started. Yeah, it's true. One of the challenges with being a community leader, on the flip side of this, is that whatever your community is, you can bet that by the time your community started growing, you're no longer doing that thing. If you're starting a community of software testers, you know at some point you're a tester yourself, but eventually you're a full-time community organizer and you get away from what it means to be a software tester. If you found that to be a problem with you, and if so, how did you handle that transition? Yeah, a bit, to be honest, especially in the past couple of years, which I think is, is a really like positive thing that testing has moved so much forward uh, with the whole kind of DevOps and continuous delivery that it's like when I look at talk submissions now, I'm like, hmm, I don't really know what this is about. So I... Over the past couple of years, I've definitely felt like I'm not the right person to lead in the co- the company or making c- certain decisions. I felt it was it's important to try to find a way to get support in that because it, it literally has been like years since I've done any proper testing. So that's hard. So it's like based on that, it's like it's interesting because you kind of feel like you want to get stuck in conversations, but. You can't because you've got nothing valuable to add. <laughs> <laughs> you could talk about running the community, but you can't talk about <laughs> the software testing on the ground. Yeah, That's kind of the loneliness of being a founder. I think it, it might be true for almost any company. You're the only person in your shoes. You know, There's really not that many other people you could talk about about what you're doing, except for other founders. Yeah, that's true. What was it like going from an online-only community to deciding, you know what, I need to get paid for this. I'm going to start doing real-world events. Because I've done a lot of real-world events with indie hackers, and you're right, it's not easy. How did you get your very first conference, your very first events off the ground? <laughs> I think for me, it's like I made the decision to do it, and like when I make a decision, I, I tend to try to follow through on it. Part of me, I think I probably lack confidence a bit, so I was like kind of looking for support from, from other people. So I partnered up with someone to take the whole testing community forward, but then that didn't end up working out, which was like frustrating. And like previous to that, I had done the co-working stuff and I'd partnered with some a couple of other people and that didn't work out. And like I had to walk away. So, you know, that, that aspect of it was like personally for, for me was kind of really tough, but I decided after that, I was like, oh, I'm just not going to, I'm not going to bother <laughs> anymore trying to work with other people. I'm just going to kind of go ahead and do things. And I think, in a sense, that kind of made it easier kind of going forward. It was like I, I just made decisions and I lived with the results of that. And I didn't have to have conversations with anyone to try to agree about what to do. So in a sense, I, 
I felt like being a, a solo founder was the right thing for the, for the first few years. And really just to get the event off the ground, I basically put a venue and told people about it and said this is how much it costs. And we had we didn't ask people to apply to speak for that first one. We had just invited people that we knew that we thought you know would be good for a first conference. I think we had about seven or eight talks for it. And it was, you know, it was great. We, my only regret is like promoting it like three months beforehand. I don't think it really was enough time to get a first event off the ground. We have a rule of like six months these days of we announce an event six months in advance. But, you know, it was a great event and everyone there was from the community. So, you know, seeing those people like meet up in real life and actually meeting them for the first time for me was great. And it was like a real kind of situation of connecting the dots with people bringing again like kind of like bringing that humanity to the community and yeah some of the people like I, I look back at the photos and there's you know a good handful of people that are, are there and still with us today and that's you know that's a great thing to see yeah i've had a similar experience with indie hackers where i will know somebody by their username from the online community and then a year and a half, two years later, I'll see them at an in-person event. And it's so weird. To, it's like, I've talked to you numerous times, but we've never actually really talked. And so I think events are, it's, it's kind of a magical feeling to go to a room full of people and see just how much energy there can be in a room with like 15 people who are actually co-located and how that differs from even an online community of many thousands of people. The great thing for me is like, what I've also like realized in hindsight is like, when you organize an event, it's like everybody knows you. So that makes it really easy to network from like my perspective is that I don't need to introduce myself to people and things like that. And naturally I'm just like really kind of like introverted. And I just love the idea that you know, people come to me to talk. As I realize in a lot of events that's, that's not always the case, but it's a really nice feeling to have that, to experience that. I think you're the fifth introvert that I've interviewed who is running a community. <laughs> Turns out this running a community is just a hack for introverts to be able to meet people easily. It is. It's the best way to do it. I, to- I totally recommend it to anyone. It's like if you're introverted, just start a community. And you can do so many things and you can get known by so, so many people. And you can just stand at the side and people will just like naturally float to you because, you know, why would- wouldn't they? It's amazing. I can hear all the introverts in the audience groaning like, ugh, why would I want people <laughs> to walk up to me? <laughs> so at this point, you've run multiple communities, including Ministry of Testing. You are the community manager for Andy Hackers. Are there any lessons that you've learned that might be helpful to people listening in who might want to start communities of their own? Hmm. I think the best thing people can do is see like a community as a very long-term plan. You know, it's, it sounds really cheesy, but it's like you plant the seed, but you can't expect something to happen straight away. I think like these days I get really kind of frustrated. I just feel like so many conversations and interactions are really kind of transactional. It's like, I'll give you this if you give me that kind of thing. If you're building a community, I just wouldn't do that. It's like, when you're speaking to people, trying to get to know people, it's you know it, you should really be thinking about what you can do for them, or 
what you know how how you can make them feel you know ge- generally it's it's kind of really sad that not a lot of communities get off the ground and i i think that's why it is is that there isn't this long term interaction between people it's all like quick you know you want results quick and if you don't get them like really quick then it's not working um but like you forget that like humans are behind the scenes and humans have lives that they're getting on with and they might disappear for a few months and come back for whatever reason but it doesn't mean they're not important or valuable it doesn't mean that they don't belong so you know i've spent so with my my head so down in like ministry of testing and i haven't really come across many other communities who kind of have have that heart within them and the only one that ever stood out to me was indie hackers so it's like I, I see so many similarities between the two communities and the fact in, in the in the kind of, kind of kindness angle and trying to do the best thing for the community and not trying to do these quick hacks just to increase engagement it's like you're genuinely trying to do the best for, for indie hackers and i've not seen a lot of that and it's like if, if you compare the two it's like these, these to me are like prime examples of how to build a community even if even if I'm a bit jealous that you don't have to sell tickets and we have to <laughs> sell loads to make sure that we can pay the bills, so you know there's there's obvious differences, but um, I think the roots of them are, are, are very similar. So this is actually a good segue to I think one of the big differences between the interview that I did with you three years ago and today. You had a lot of things going through your head at that time in 2016. And one of them was that you wanted to focus on your goal of not always having to be thinking about work. And more specifically, you said that you were super keen on setting up Ministry of Testing so that it could run without you. I know a lot of aspiring founders who are the opposite. They want to spend all day, every day on their business. They want to be completely integral to their business. Why wasn't that the case with you? And why were you focused on creating something that could sort of outlive you? So 2015, I had my third child. No, no, sorry, fourth child. <laughs> I've had so many kids that I've, I've forgotten how many children I have. <laughs> <laughs> 2015, I had my fourth child. It, it was like really kind of first year was like really intense experience for me. And then, pretty much like soon after she was born, my husband had some health issues with his hips, and it was just like you know really chronic pain. It was not a lot of fun. My daughter wouldn't sleep without me for a full year. Um, so she was basically attached to me. Uh, she didn't like strangers. She would cry at anyone else who would come near her and stuff like that. So that that year was like really, really intense for me. And I was still, I think 2016, I did my first conference outside of the UK. Uh, and we brought the family, which was interesting. So there's four kids and my husband and I uh, all crammed into this mini apartment hotel. Uh, I, w- I wouldn't do that again personally. <laughs> but, you know, I was just sitting there uh, before Test Bash in New York thinking, this is not where I want to be. This is not the kind of work I want to do. I don't want to be traveling the world. I've got kids. I, I home educate as well, um, which is a whole other story. So we just like, you know, do things as a family a lot. And if we go traveling, we just bring them along with us generally. But it was just like too much for me. I was like, uh, personally, this is 
this is not where I, I want to be. So it's like at that point, I made myself a promise that I, I would work towards moving, removing myself as as a bottleneck, as the person who ran things. I had no idea how I was, was going to do it. I just knew that in my heart, like, this is not the work I wanted to do. It was like I'd start a community that's getting big. Was going to places and like man- trying to manage the finances and everything in between. I was like, this is this is just not me. It's you know, it's not where I want to be. And I find it re- kind of really hard to say that because you know, I do love the community, the whole community behind it. But I felt like I, I genuinely felt like I was not the right person to take it forward. That where it was going was not was not for me. So I I, I started trying to figure out how to do that. Um, I had tried to hire a couple of people, um, and that didn't happen, which was like really frustrating. One had literally said yes, and then at the last minute backed up, back down. And like at that point, I was like so overwhelmed with everything. And then having that happen, I was like, you know, it just made everything so much worse. And it's like you know, going back to square one. But also around that time. Richard, who's, who's now the CEO, we had started working together and he he's UK based and he was doing Test Bash Manchester, which is further up north in the UK. And we, we just started building a strong relationship and we kind of worked really well together. He, he was focused on just doing Test Bash Manchester to begin with. Um, during our conversations, I kind of said to him, uh, you know, I told him, honestly and openly like what I wanted and that I would love for someone to take on more stuff and I didn't want to do certain things and then he just started taking on more and more responsibilities kind of each month or each six months went on he took responsibility of the conferences uh, we started doing we did like test batch Philly after New York so he took responsibility for that you know, I guess the rest, rest with that is history. Is uh, is three years? It's three years. It's taken me. So it's not, it's not like it. It's been, it's been a long three years. <laughs> um, I won't lie about that. But you know, I've been very patient with everything I've done, and you know, I've tried to make decisions that are obviously like beneficial to me in the, in the long term. I obviously feel like I deserve that to to some extent, but. Also trying to think about what's best for the community, and so like everything, every decision we make is is based on that. And basically, over the past three years, I worked closely with Richard to teach him everything I knew. He's probably been competent mostly on his own for the past um, past year, but then. Uh, He's, we've also been hiring people as well, so it's like that transfer of knowledge to to other people has also been slow. I wasn't rushed to kind of leave, but you know, at the same time, I knew I wanted to, and and the more I stayed doing ministry of testing stuff, the more I felt like I wanted to do other things, and I couldn't. So it's like you know, so I stuck between two walls. It's like I, I love. The company, but I also have other things that I'd love to get on with. And as long as I'm still tightly involved with Ministry of Testing, I can never do these other things. And then you start thinking about, oh, God, I've only got one life. <laughs> can we hurry up, please? Um, you know, stuff like that. But 
yeah, three years and almost there. And w- one of the ways we transferred over knowledge was Richard would often ask me, say, what would Rosie do? <laughs> so he'd find himself in situations and he would ask, he would ask me, and say, what would you do, Rosie, in this situation? And literally, that's been my past three years, is like sharing that knowledge with, with the team as well, not just him. Do you think there's anything you could have done early on with Ministry of Testing to make it easier for you to transition out of the business later on? I probably should have hired someone to help me out earlier. But, you know, I was trying loosely, but I I just found it really hard. And I didn't know where the company is going. And I didn't know what I was doing. And I was like, who am I going to hire? And I kind of got stuck, like, in a bit of a situation of just, just not making a decision. And, yeah, it, it was tough. You know, I could have hired someone, which probably I, I wish I do wish I had. But, you know, it's hindsight as well. It's like... I had tried. I had I had been looking out for people who could potentially help me. I didn't just want to put out like a standard job ad. I felt like it had to be the right person, but I was stuck about who, who that right person was and what they would do. I wasn't sure. I was indecisive about what that role is. I just felt confused within myself. And I, I guess like I, I struggled to communicate. You know, I would have struggled to communicate that to anyone out there. And then also it's like I I really wanted to hire someone within the community, but actually it's really hard to find someone who would be willing to take up that role. Whilst there's, you know, a bunch of great testers out there, it's like running a community is a a completely different thing. Yeah, it's totally different. I mean, uh, people join your community for a reason and running the community is a totally different set of skills and perhaps even interests than being a member of the community. But at the same time, it's really tempting to hire people from your community because they've got that domain knowledge. You know, they're interested in the space vaguely and it's harder to find somebody else out in the world, but it's still not always going to work out. Yeah, but but saying that, it's like where we are now, like with nine, ten people company, at least half of them have come from the community. So we've got kind of like an events community person who was a tester and we, we, this is Heather for reference for anyone else, but she was just in the community every day anyways, doing stuff. So we were like, you know, we saw that as a great opportunity, like that she would be perfect for the role. There's, uh, there's Anya who was a tester, but really wanted to get into kind of marketing and kind of social media kind of stuff. And I was, I was like, well, that's ideal because you know a lot about testing and what we do. You've been to our events. How cool would that be? So we hired her. Uh, we hired a developer who used to be a tester, which is you know interesting. Well, so Richard, uh, Richard was a tester. His first speaking gig was at Test Bash. We helped him, you know, create his speaking career, and he remembers that you know with you know with fondness, I would say, and. We've got another guy who's just focused on creating kind of content and learning materials. And obviously there's, you know, other people there that haven't come from a testing background, but you know, I, yeah, I think it's great that we've managed to hire people from, from within the community. I think that's, you know, a really positive thing to, to keep, keep certain things intact. One of the more interesting hires, so to speak, I think you've had is that of your husband, Graham, who's helped you run Ministry of Testing for, I think, six or seven years now. 
Yeah. And this really ties in with what you were talking about earlier, the fact that you had a second child and a third child and a fourth, and now you have five children yeah. that you homeschool while running this business. I have trouble getting stuff done. I don't have any kids. I have very few responsibilities. I feel like there's not enough time in the day. What are your productivity tips for making it work as a founder when you have such an active family life as well? Uh, time boxing. It's amazing. <laughs> you laugh at me, but it's, it's like a, if I get like two hours to myself to do something, I just get my head down and I do it because I know that at the end of two hours, my time is gone and I'll get nothing, nothing else done. So, you know, for me, that's like people don't understand like how, how precious my time has been. But at the same time, it's like it's made me realize that actually sometimes keeping really busy doesn't add value. Um, so it's like, you know, sometimes I don't do a lot of work. Well, you know, previously after having children, I wasn't doing a lot of work. I was just like kind of staying afloat and trying to keep things going. And that didn't stop things happening. And kind of having that real, realization that, you know, things will be okay if you don't do anything is, is you know, really interesting. I've also become, I guess, quite good at trying to fit everything in. So when I guess for about five years now I've been running I've been pretty committed to just like keeping a regular running route running two or three times a week nothing massive just like 5k each time just to clear my head it's like helped me a lot but there were times with uh, young kids where the only option for me to do that would be to run with the kids and so you know I guess you know it's coming up with solutions and thinking of creative ways to to get get things done and not thinking that you have to have this eight hour block in a day to to get work done it doesn't you know it really doesn't have to be like that I think slack has been a great game game changer with with the change of my role to be more supportive and not actually doing work because I, I can just like hop onto slack and help my team out, help see if they have any questions. And I don't really check my emails much anymore at all. And I guess I was privileged in the position that I was, and I could just say, look, this is how I work, and that's how it's going to have to be. <laughs> and, and, you know, there's no choice in the matter. I couldn't do anything yeah. about it, and they couldn't do anything about it. So everybody kind of had to put up with that, and that's okay. Slack is great, and the time boxing thing is so underrated. I have pretty much unbounded time. I have no kids. I have no real responsibilities in life. I'm just sort of free-floating through the world. And I'm just less efficient because of it. Like the average hour I spend doing things is probably not as efficient as the average hour you spend doing things because you've got all these deadlines built into your life. You've got five kids. You know, you homeschool them. You've got a lot of hard deadlines that can't really be negotiated with. And I find myself getting into this almost like robot mode when I'm procrastinating. You know, when I've got something due, something coming up, that last hour I turn into almost like a machine. But you have many of those deadlines all day, every day. Yeah, and I have no shame admitting that I'll work whilst the kids are watching TV sometimes. And that's fine with me. <laughs> Some people will admit that. You know, or I'll go down the park and they'll be playing and I'll be on my phone. I won't necessarily be playing with them. And, you know, that's, that's me. That's the way I cope. That's how I get things done. Um, you know, my kids are fine and they're happy. And despite what some people might say, you know, I'm never in danger kind of thing. But, you know, and at the same time, the kids understand the situation that we're in. 
Um, I, I've been getting out a bit more these days and not, you know, just kind of getting out of the house to do a bit more focused work. And, and my younger ones look at me and they're like, where are you going? <laughs> they don't understand the concepts of me not being around all the time. Let's say you were faced with a choice, Rosie. Let's say you had to start another business and you have two options. Option A is you start a business that has a mission, kind of like Ministry of Testing. So you're starting a business to change other people's lives, to change the world, as they say. Option B is you start a business to change your own life, to make yourself happier, to you know increase your freedom, to give yourself better habits, to improve your relationships and stuff like that. Which of these choices would you make today if you had to pick one? Oh, probably change my life, <laughs> selfishly. I feel like I've given a lot to everyone. And like it's time for me to be a bit more selfish and do things for me. And I don't think a lot of people realize like how much I've given of myself and how many other things that I'd like to do. So definitely, you know, I feel like I need to focus on me <laughs> and stop saying yes to things, which I'm still a bit <laughs> bad at doing. But um yeah, you know, I, I, I've got so many things that I'd like to do, but I'm, I'm in no rush to do them. Um, you know, at the same time, it's like, you know, Ministry of Testing has grown to, to what it is, and it's been, it's been a great experience. And it's happened over, you know, a fairly long period of time, which has given me a lot of time to reflect. And the industry has changed as well. And there's a lot more people creating companies in different ways. There's, you know, Paul Jarvis that goes on about the um, company of one and things like that. And I find that interesting and, you know, kind of jealous when I I look at models like that. And then I think I'm ministry of testing and all the responsibility I have there. You know, you always want what you don't have, I think. But, you know, I think there's a lot more options out there. But, you know, also then thinking about the indie hacker work, that I'm doing at the moment is, you know, it wasn't something that I really planned for, to be honest. I, I feel like it just kind of happened. I did put myself out there, but is that I, I didn't really expect to be where I am right now, doing the indie hacker community work. But you know, that's to me is, you know, I'm I'm, I'm loving it. I, I'm honestly, you know, really enjoying it, and I love trying to understand how other communities work. And having that flexibility or similar work culture that we've had at Ministry of Testing, that's not always easy to come by. So I I like to be grateful for the opportunities that I have at the moment. I'm not sure. I'm always tempted to start another company, but I don't really really know what what I want to do now. I'm just happy doing doing what I'm doing and learning more about the indie hacking community that I had wanted to spend a lot of time doing anyways um, and just taking time to reflect on on everything and spending time with my own little thoughts in my head. Well, count me in as well as being one of the people who's happy that you've made the choices that you've made and ended up as part of the Indie Hackers community. I think you've really breathed your own version of life into things and made the community a much nicer, more helpful place. So I appreciate having you. At this point, you've started you know, several businesses. You spend literally all day, every day on the Anti-Hackers Forum talking to other people who are starting businesses. Based on your experiences so far, what advice would you have for somebody listening who's considering starting a business of their own? 
the, a, f- a few weeks back, or a few months back at Test Bash in, in Brighton, I was having a conversation with someone. And they called me a uh, master puppeteer. And that kind of struck me as uh, something really kind of interesting. And I was like, yes, that's exactly who I am. And it's like, I start stuff. I, I pull the strings. Like, I make things happen. I make decisions and I make them happen. Um, and I don't do it for myself. I, I hide behind the scenes. I, you know, literally, I've never gotten up on stage for a test bash to speak. I refuse to do it. And I love hiding behind the scenes and just looking at every, everything that happens and figuring out what what to do with it. And I think it would be amazing if more people did that and had, had less ego in how they approach things and kind of, kind of really focused in on what it is that people need and want. It's great advice and very difficult to follow because... Quite frankly, I think a lot of us who choose to be founders are just big balls of ego. But God, does it make a huge difference if we can get out of our own way and start focusing on what other people need rather than just ourselves. Anyway, it's been my pleasure talking to you, Rosie. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Can you tell listeners where they can go to find out more about what you're up to nowadays? Yeah, well, you can find me at Indie Hackers, obviously, slash Rosie Sherry. I'm Rosie Sherry on Twitter, and I'm rosiesherry.com as a website that I don't update too often. All right. Thanks so much, Rosie. No problem. Thank you. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you want a really easy way to support the podcast, why don't you head over to iTunes and leave us a quick rating or even a review? If you're looking for an easy way to get there, just go to ndhackers.com slash review, and that should open up iTunes on your computer. I read pretty much all the reviews that you guys leave over there, and it really helps other people to discover the show, so your support is very much appreciated. In addition, if you are running your own internet business, or if that's something you hope to do someday, you should join me and a whole bunch of other founders on the ndhackers.com website. It's a great place to get feedback on pretty much any problem or question that you might have while running your business. If you listen to the show, you know that I am a huge proponent of getting help from other founders rather than trying to build your business all by yourself. So you'll see me on the forum for sure, as well as more than a handful of some of the guests that I've had on the podcast. If you're looking for inspiration, we've also got a huge directory full of hundreds of products built by other indie hackers, every one of which includes revenue numbers and some of the behind the scenes strategies for how they grew their products from nothing. As always, thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.